0: Hello everyone. This is Sam of Historians Explaining. So, a few days ago I posted my first lecture publicly about Myth of the Month 18, Robin Hood. And I left that one off discussing the different themes and symbols in the early Legend of Robin Hood as it survives from the 1400s. So now for patrons only, I want to continue that discussion and talk about the significance of Robin Hood as an outlaw and the symbolism of the setting in the Greenwood. And then when I'm done with that, I'll talk about the earliest clues as to the origins of the Legend of Robin Hood, and the question of whether or not there was a real historical Robin Hood behind the stories. So to pick up basically where I left off previously, I'm going to talk about the significance of the fact that Robin Hood is an outlaw. We sometimes use that term today just to mean sort of a criminal who's on the run. But in the Middle Ages, it had a much more specific meaning. An outlaw is not just a criminal, but it's one who has been literally cast out from the protection of the law. So the custom in medieval England was that if someone was summoned to a court to answer for their crimes and they failed to show for a certain period of time, maybe a year, they would then be formally declared an outlaw and thereafter anyone who encountered that outlaw was allowed to kill them without any consequence sometimes with even a reward added and the basic idea was that this person was now treated like a dangerous animal such as a wolf who was simply an implacable menace and no longer to be seen as a human being. And in fact, it was sometimes said that outlaws had a wolf's head. And there was a phrase sometimes, if someone was declared an outlaw, it could be said that the authorities, quote, cried his wolf's head. So declaring someone an outlaw was a warning and also an invitation to hunt them down like an animal. So it can sound as if, you know, the outlaw was the most hated, the most execrated possible figure in the medieval world. But really, it was more complicated than that, right? There was often romance and attraction towards the figure of the outlaw, and there's this enduring ambivalence in how people view the figure of the outlaw, who is set apart from ordinary society and hence can be seen as both holy and profane at once. So the medieval figure of the outlaw can be related back to earlier ideas going back to the ancient and classical world of the person who exists independent of society. And you can see a similar kind of ambivalence, for example, in Aristotle's politics when he talks about the man without a polis. So Aristotle argues that the human is a zoon politikon, a creature that is suited to the polis, that is naturally social. But he discusses at points in the first book of his politics the idea of a man without a polis who lives somehow out in the wilds like an animal. And he is said to be either superhuman like a god or subhuman like an animal. The implication, I think, is that this person outside society is somehow both at once. And there's a passage in the politics that can be translated, quote, It is evident that the polis is a creation of nature, and he who by nature and not by mere accident is without a polis is either above humanity or below it. He is the tribeless, lawless, hearthless one whom Homer denounces, the outcast who is a lover of war. He may be compared to a lone piece in a game of drafts. So you can see here this ambivalence and uncertainty summed up that the man without a polis is somehow contrary to nature. And this makes him either sort of sacred and godlike or base and animal-like, or maybe both at once. And there's another passage that similarly sums up this sense. Quote, He who is unable to live in society or has no need because he is sufficient for himself must be either a beast or a god. And this sense of ambivalence, I think, then, is also dramatized in Sophocles's play Oedipus at Colonus, which is the second play in the Oedipus cycle, where we see Oedipus old and blinded and outcast from his polis, which was Thebes. And he wanders alone in the wilds, abhorred, people keep their distance, but also at the same time, he becomes an object of desire and fascination, and different cities then want to recruit him and bring him in. So he attracts both of these feelings of kind of reverence and disgust at once. And it's significant here, you can see Oedipus as kind of resonant with the notion of the outlaw, someone fascinating and attractive, someone to be celebrated in song and myth, but at the same time, abhorred and feared. And it's significant that Oedipus, according to the early legends, was originally a cattle poacher, someone who went out into the countryside and stole livestock in basically the same way that Robin Hood is a poacher who goes out into the forest and kills and steals animals like deer. So this idea of sort of the outcast who is a thief and a poacher is also related, I think, to the notion in later Roman law of homo sacer, which is another word sort of for the outlaw, the man outside the law, who could be killed at will. He was not protected by law. But he also could not be offered as a sacrifice. In a sense, he can't be sacrificed because he's already legally dead. His legal personhood has been extinguished and he has now become a wild animal. So if we think then of the Robin Hood stories from the 1400s, it's certainly doubtful that the yeoman audience or even the minstrels who composed those Robin Hood ballads knew of Aristotle or Sophocles. But they surely did know late Arthurian stories. You can see sort of parodies and references in the ballads referring back to the Arthurian mythos. And there are particular stories, especially Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which of course I've discussed before, that was composed in the late 1300s. So probably the same time, that some of these stories and early ballads of Robin Hood were being composed. And you can make very useful comparisons between the figure of Robin Hood and the story of the Green Knight. So in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, it's a very finely structured narrative, and you can see a carefully maintained symmetry or mirroring where the green figure, in this case the Green Knight, confronts the figure of authority, in that case Arthur, and the knight can be seen as a sort of nemesis or challenger testing out both the power and the honor of King Arthur and his knights. The Green Knight, for his part, has a green chapel in the forest that serves as kind of a wild mirror image of Camelot where Camelot is a place of light, of joy, and of law and order and civilization. The Green Chapel is dark, mysterious, wild. So you get this mirroring and balancing of wilderness and civilization, which then is underscored in the structure of the plot where the Green Knight presents himself to King Arthur's court to be beheaded, and then in return, he expects Arthur's knight, Gawain, to go to his palace, the Green Chapel in the forest, which is sort of his capital, in order to decapitate him in return. There's this perfect mirroring. Similarly, you can see the Robin Hood story creating a similar kind of structure, with Robin Hood and his merry men out in the forest, usually all dressed in green with their bows and arrows, serving as a kind of nemesis to their opposite number, which is the sheriff and his posse who try to enforce law and order and who repeatedly have to act out a similar sort of plot where Robin Hood sets out from the forest to Nottingham challenges the sheriff, and the sheriff must then pursue them back into the forest. So you can see it as almost the same storyline as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight just flipped, and now we're seeing it from the point of view of the green man of the forest instead of the man of authority in his palace. There's also the significance of decapitation, right? As I talked about in my lecture before about the Green Knight, the overarching structure of the story of Gawain and the Green Knight is built on the beheading game, this idea of a reciprocal challenge, which is a theme that had existed before in medieval literature. And there it's clearly connected to the cult of the severed head, the idea that certain people or creatures can be beheaded. But if they do not die, they only gain greater powers, like powers of prophecy. And similarly, if we look at the Robin Hood stories, Robin Hood and his men are also master decapitators. This is their preferred mode of killing an enemy. And you can see that Robin Hood himself beheads Guy of Gisborne in Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne. He also beheads the sheriff in A Jest of Robin Hood, which is kind of a gratuitous beheading because apparently he's already shot him full of arrows, but he still goes that extra length to behead the sheriff. And in Robin Hood and the Monk, which is maybe the bloodiest Robin Hood story, Robin Hood's henchmen, Little John and Much the Miller's son, behead the monk and page, which also is gratuitous but it is specifically spelled out in the ballad that they cut off their heads. Back in Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne which I mentioned earlier there's also this play with changing identity and switching places where Robin Hood and Guy are sort of mirror images of one another and Robin Hood beheads Guy and mutilates the face in order to create the illusion that he himself is Guy and has killed Robin Hood. So you see again this theme of symmetry and changing places. So there's clearly a lot of resonance here between the symbols and the motifs in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and the Robin Hood legend. And Robin Hood, like the Green Knight, can be seen to represent then the mysterious power of nature, which is somehow beyond the control or beyond the understanding of law and order and civilization and beyond the power even of the king himself and who serves to challenge the king and his officers, specifically to challenge them to live up to their word and keep their oaths. So remember in Sir Gawain in The Green Knight, The Green Knight is mischievous and he's a masterful taunter and he really drives home the pompous and overblown reputation of Camelot, which he wants to put to the test. And he insists on Gawain fulfilling his oath to the Green Knight to the letter, even if it means losing his life. And similarly, Robin Hood challenges people, asks them how much money they have, penalizes them if they lie, uh, holds the sheriff to his oath to respect Robin Hood's sovereignty in the forest. And when he breaks that Promise tracks him down and kills him. So there seems to be a similar symbolism here where Robin Hood and the Green Knight have this kind of primal and primitive power, which maybe springs from their connection to nature and the Greenwood. And so they, while they are primitive and primal, they are not anarchic. They do not create chaos, rather, they create their own order that challenges the established order, the order of the king and the king's law. So if you look again at Robin Hood, Robin Hood has been cast out of civilization or he has chosen to secede from civilization and go live in the Greenwood. But once there, he does not simply become a sort of base creature, although he has these animal overtones, but rather he creates his own society and he is never alone. He is not the lone drifter like Oedipus at Colonus or the man without a polis referred to in Aristotle. Rather, he always has, you could say, his flock around him in the form of his merry men or his merry many, as it's sometimes called. In the ballads. So he is still a social creature. He has a kind of alternate community, or even you could say a kingdom within a kingdom, that he builds around himself and that has its own law, its own authority, and its own ethics. And Robin Hood behaves like his own independent sovereign. His men call him master, although he apparently is not tyrannical. He's very uh, liberal and tolerant towards his men, but they still recognize him as a master and he holds court like Arthur. And this is most clearly dramatized in the end of The Jest when Robin Hood confronts the king, whom he now recognizes as King Edward, and the two of them basically negotiate an agreement where Robin Hood will enter the king's service if the slate is wiped clean and his crimes are pardoned and in this conversation although Robin Hood is courteous and respectful towards the king as he is always towards guests he speaks with him almost like an equal like two rulers or two kings working out a treaty and so when you look at the Robin Hood story it's not really a story of anarchy but it's a story of building an alternate world a sort of tiny, independent kingdom, a realm unto itself in a sort of forest utopia. And from that viewpoint, you then see the attitude towards authority that the authors and the characters express in their world. Robin Hood's attitude towards authority can seem contradictory. On the one hand, the stories are clearly cynical about social authority and institutions, and they offer a fantasy of defiance in some instances, like when he, for instance, kills the sheriff or robs monks, but that does not mean that it's revolutionary. In other instances, Robin Hood and his men are respectful or even reverential towards higher authorities. He's a reverential devotee of St. Mary, but he hates the abbot of St. Mary's Abbey. So that can seem like a contradiction. He also respects the king and praises him, but he hates the sheriff, who is the main representative of the king's authority in Nottinghamshire. So the pattern seems to be, although we don't have enough material to really lay it out with certainty, the pattern seems to be that Robin Hood respects the ultimate founts of authority, like the king but he hates their representatives, their intermediaries that he actually encounters in real life. And it may be that this sort of division of feelings reflects the resentment of yeomen or other middling sorts in late medieval society, which was an increasingly mediated society, a highly organized society with complex, multi-layered institutions with overlapping jurisdictions. So it may be that in the high and late Middle Ages, people were increasingly cynical or distrustful towards these various sort of functionaries and intermediaries who claimed to represent certain sources of legitimate authority. And in those conditions, Robin Hood represents a certain kind of attitude towards authority, which sees loyalty and obedience as personal, conditional, and voluntary, not absolute And this may be the kind of way of viewing law and authority that the stories served to express or promote. A major theme running through all of the early Robin Hood stories is corruption, institutional corruption. For instance, in the early part of The Jest, we see that the abbot of St. Mary's has bribed the judge to favor him. When the knight repays the debt, and so the proceeding is rendered moot anyway, the abbot tries to demand that the judge repay this bribe, and the judge refuses, and both of them end up looking like greedy, grasping, low characters. And this sort of scene of corruption is pretty realistic, again, for the high or late Middle Ages, especially in the high Middle Ages, in the 1200s. There were no rules or laws in place in England guaranteeing any sort of impartiality among government officials or law courts and in fact bribes flowed freely and even sometimes retainers so powerful people like abbots or bishops or major landowners might pay a regular salary to a judge or a justice of the peace to make sure that they got favorable treatment and that was just allowed there was no law against it likewise the whole idea of juries was very different at this time So juries, unlike today, juries were not supposed to be impartial. Rather, it was more the opposite. Juries tended to be composed of local people who were specially selected because they were connected to the case. They had some association with the accused or the victim, or they were a witness, who provided evidence, so this meant that juries were not at all impartial, but they were easy to manipulate and sway in favor of whoever was the wealthier, more powerful party. So it's not surprising that by about 1300, this whole system was seen as corrupt, unfair, and rigged for the wealthy, and it had lost legitimacy if it ever had any. It had very low legitimacy in the eyes of commoners. And so some effort began to be put in by Kings Edward I and Edward II, starting around 1300, to try to stem the flow of bribes and create some sort of more impartial or trustworthy system of justice. But it took several laws and decrees over the course of the 1300s to gradually change this. So the stories that we see in the early Robin Hood legends from the 1400s seem to reflect conditions earlier on in the 1200s or early 1300s. This is one of many instances where ideas and incidents in the stories seem to hearken back to about one or two hundred years earlier when these were really live controversies. But nonetheless, As much as corruption is an important theme in the Robin Hood legend, the stories still are not about tyranny or oppression of the poor. For one thing, we never see any discussion of the situation of the poor. There's no mention, again, of high taxes or abuse by landlords. And the bad guys in the story are bad mainly just because they're prideful, they're greedy, or simply by virtue of the office that they hold. So the monks, as we see, are mocked as hypocrites. But when it comes to the sheriff, who is the other big adversary in the Robin Hood stories, the sheriff is Robin's great enemy, not because he's particularly unjust or abusive, but just because he is the sheriff. He's not tyrannical or treasonous and his crime basically is just refusing to honor his promise to leave Robin Hood alone in the forest, and his failure to respect Robin Hood's men's de facto independence. And as we've seen, Robin Hood does ultimately reconcile with the king, so he respects and accepts that the king is the king, and he gets along with him, establishes a positive relationship, but ultimately he finds that he cannot serve under the king. And as we said, at the end of the jest, he leaves the king's service and goes back into the Greenwood where he lives as an outlaw for a further 22 years. So it seems it is in his nature to live free in the woods and not under a master So in this sense, you could say he is an embodiment of the type of figure that Aristotle was talking about, one who lives outside society by nature, not by necessity. He had the option to remain under the patronage of the king, which is something many yeomen in England would have tremendously envied. It was the highest patronage you could receive but it is against Robin Hood's nature. So in some Robin Hood and his men are cynical about authority and they are determined to live independently, but they are not anarchists. They have their own law, their own ethical code, and they've created, in a sense, their own little kingdom. But how could they possibly have the legitimate authority to do that? What empowers them to create, to basically secede? more or less, from the kingdom and create their own order. Well, that authority, I think, springs in some way from the Greenwood itself. So the setting is tremendously important and freighted with symbolism. For one thing, as I said, it is in the north, But most of the early stories of Robin Hood that have been found were composed in the South, and he's a figure who was spoken of much more in Southern England and in Scotland. So the stories are sort of looking upon the North as stereotypically rugged, wild, and romantic, a lot like the way Americans think of the Old West, in quotation marks, or the Wild West. And furthermore, Robin Hood is always associated with the Greenwood, whether it's in Barnesdale or Sherwood. And the stories of Robin Hood fit into a larger tradition, a larger ongoing collection of outlaw and rebel tales taking place in the wood, which the historian Morris Keane calls the Matter of the Greenwood. So just as Medieval scholars would say there are three basic mythic cycles that you should know, the matter of Rome, which is classical mythology, the matter of France, which centers on Charlemagne, and the matter of Britain, which is the Arthurian stories. Likewise, Keane argues there was also a matter of the Greenwood, which had some similarities to the older romances, but was more popular and more populist in a sense. And these stories take place in the Greenwood, and in a way you can see the Robin Hood stories as sort of the final, fullest realization of the matter of the Greenwood. And the woods themselves are clearly symbolic, and there are invocations at the beginnings of some of the Robin Hood ballads. They don't have very much poetic description in the body but several of them begin with just one stanza in a very pithy way sort of invoking the atmosphere the appeal the mystery of the woods and for instance Robin Hood and the Monk which may be the earliest ballad surviving starts with this very pithy evocative stanza in summer when the woods be bright and leaves be large and long It is full merry in Fair Forest to hear the small bird's song. So, this sort of invoking opening can sound remarkably sentimental for what's really a pretty dark and rough and tumble story. And it suggests that sort of the mystery and the romance of the woods are a necessary background for the entire legend. The woods have a sort of double meaning and an ambiguity, like Robin himself and like the figure of the outlaw. On the one hand, the woods evoke classical Arcadia, the sort of rural paradise, and also Eden from the Book of Genesis. The woods in the story seem to be in perpetual spring. There's no reference to rain or snow in the winter. There's no reference to summer heat. It seems to be always May, always a time of greenness and renewal. And the evocation of Eden is very significant in particular because according to traditional medieval philosophy, Eden is the original source of human society and all law and authority derives ultimately from Adam. Adam's commission from God to rule over nature and the plants and the animals, Adam's marriage to Eve, and it was commonly taught that all kings could trace their lineage genealogically back to Adam, who is in some sense is the original king. So law, authority, social order, all of these things in some way trace back to Eden, to the fall of man, which ultimately, of course, derives from eating of the tree of knowledge. And the greenwood tree that is repeatedly invoked and referred to in the ballads clearly echoes and evokes the tree of knowledge and the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, At the same time that they're paradisal and connected to Eden, the woods are also mysterious and menacing, a place of wild beasts. It was the sort of place that most ordinary people in medieval England would have known to stay away from. And the fact that yeoman foresters, who as we said, you know, Robin Hood is clearly recognizable as a yeoman forester, those people had a kind of special status and a special aura to them because they had the knowledge and the skills to go out into this otherwise menacing and dangerous place that is the Greenwood. And Robin Hood and his men, furthermore as outlaws, they also in a sense are wild beasts. Constantly over and over again through the legend, Robin Hood and the Merry Men are likened to animals. Outlaws in general, as I said, were said to have wolf's heads, and that word wolf appears sometimes in the ballads. In The Jest of Robin Hood, the cook lures the sheriff out of Nottingham and into Sherwood Forest, persuading him to go into the forest to hunt. And there's one particular scene where the cook specifically tells the sheriff that he should rush into the woods because he has seen a big green stag. And it's very clear that the cook is toying with the sheriff and that his promise of catching a big green stag is a reference to Robin Hood, who is always dressed all in green and sort of is the the great male kingly figure who rules over the woods. And in addition to that, there are even subtler references, such as, for one thing, the name Robin, which contains the word rob, it, it evokes robbery. But also, Robin is the name of a bird. Also, in addition to that, there's, I think, an underlying sense that Robin Hood and his men are animalistic because of how they live and what they eat. So I've mentioned before, like in the myths we make, there's this common human assumption that people take on the essence or character of what they eat over and over again all through the ballads it's emphasized that robin and his men live off of animals particularly venison which is a a wild animal an animal of the forest and i think it reinforces this notion that they have or they have taken on a sort of animal essence so if we combine these different themes and references together the arcadian and eden references the animalistic and bestial overtones we can see Robin Hood as not only a yeoman outlaw in the woods, but as essentially a kind of man of the woods, an embodiment of the forest and of the primitive power of nature. And this has a political significance. This is why Robin Hood uniquely has this sort of special ability to create his own commonwealth, to sort of refound society and civilization over again in the woods. And there was a common medieval idea, especially in the scholastic age, from the 1200s to the 1400s, there was a common idea of a natural law that stands above human law and in some way can supersede the positive law enacted by kings and states. But if that is true, There's the further question then of where this law resides and who has the authority to invoke it and enforce it. Who, in a sense, has the authority to overrule a king in the name of natural law? Well, the customary assumption, if you read scholastic philosophy like Thomas Aquinas, the assumption is that that's the church. The church is the repository of the higher law. But the question remains then couldn't this law equally be accessed directly from nature or is it embodied some way directly in nature in that realm that is beyond human control that is beyond the control or understanding of the king this explains on the one hand the ballad's hatred for the church who traditionally held themselves to stand for this natural law or higher law. And hence, from the point of view of an outlaw like Robin Hood, they could be seen as imposters or as competitors for Robin Hood himself, this man of the woods, this man of nature. It also helps to explain Robin Hood's casual flouting of the king's authority. At the end of the jest, Robin Hood finds that he is bored and unhappy in the king's service and he wants to go back to the Greenwood. But rather than asking for the king's permission to resign and return to Barnsdale or Sherwood, instead he sneaks out, he lies, and breaks his bond of service to the king, which he seems to feel he's perfectly entitled to do. So in these ways, Robin Hood's authority to create his own kind of commonwealth in the woods and to flout the higher authority of the crown springs not just from himself or his own personality, but more deeply from the greenwood. So this sort of deeper underlying structure, I think, of the beliefs and assumptions embedded in the Robin Hood story, some of it might be hard for us to understand or excavate today when we just see this sort of odd madcap tale of a renegade in the woods. But I think that there are certain aspects or strands of thinking in the Robin Hood mythos that help to account for its popularity and the fact that it has continued to grow and transmit to new generations all through the modern era. There is, in a sense, a kind of individualism, a celebration of personal independence And if we think back to the ethics, the ethical code that is embedded in the stories, it's very heavily focused on oath-keeping, promise-keeping, and on voluntary consensual agreements. There's a sort of contractualism, an idea of power as essentially contractual and based on consent, rather than on familial relations or filial piety. As I said, Robin Hood and his men have no apparent family and they do not regard anybody as having a kind of inherent authority over them the way a father does over children. So these men are unencumbered, they freely choose to join the band and they make their own law based on agreements and oaths. And in all of these ways, I think the mentality in these stories remarkably prefigures the idea of the social contract, this notion that became fashionable much later in the 16 and 1700s, the idea that all law and authority derived from a primordial agreement, a coming together of free men to set up a social authority and that this contract is the original basis of law and authority rather than the power of a king as a sort of father figure writ large, which is more the royal absolutist idea that you see in philosophers like Filmer. So I think it prefigures this notion of the social contract and remember that according to important contract theorists like Hobbes and Locke, Where does this contract take place? It takes place in the state of nature. Human beings in their view are originally in a sort of natural state of freedom, which can be seen as brutal in the view of Hobbes or as peaceful and idyllic, like in the view of Locke. But either way, it is sort of the grounding, the background from which society is then built. So, in sum, the worldview that you see in the early Robin Hood legend is remarkably consonant with liberal individualism as it would later develop, and hence it could be easily translated and reused and moralized. But all of that being said, nonetheless, the Robin Hood story was not intended as a social or political manifesto. It has no great social message Rather, the stories simply show a tangle of related feelings, associations, aspirations, which were sometimes in tension, sometimes contradictory. And Robin Hood himself has a set of attitudes and aspirations that he acts out in his adventures. He does not have some great theory of society. He's not a radical revolutionary theorist. He's just a bandit who prefers to live the life of the outlaw. And in time, he came to be idealized, much like Billy the Kid or Bonnie and Clyde, people who just wanted to go around and rob, but whom some people could latch onto as symbols of something more idealistic. In these early years, though, in the 1400s, it's clear that people did not latch on to Robin because he represented some greater social or political cause. They latched on to Robin because he was cool. He's fearless he makes his own laws, he answers to no one. And he was, I think, an irresistible figure, especially for young men who were chafing against the power of masters, employers, and patriarchs. And there's an irony here in the popularity and the idealization of Robin Hood. It shows this disjuncture where many artists and some scholars have romanticized a figure that they would surely never actually want to meet in real life. And the irony is captured, for instance, in Julian Barnes's novel called England, England, which was written in 1998. In this novel, a media magnate clearly based on people like Rupert Murdoch, creates a gigantic amusement park on the Isle of Wight that is supposed to encapsulate all of England in a small space for visitors. And naturally, it includes a Robin Hood pageant where actors put on a show acting out Robin Hood and his adventures every day. And this show is intended to represent the noble spirit of liberty and defiance of tyranny. And this magnate even uses sort of Marxist language of class struggle, as well as this you know, nationalist idea that Robin Hood represents this essential English freedom. But the actors who are employed to put on this show hate the low pay, the bad working conditions, and the humiliating costumes. And so they start poaching and pillaging, they go around marauding, stealing from other parts of the park and even neighboring farms. And so naturally they're all fired and replaced with more obedient and docile actors. And the magnate character says at one point, we must bring some respectability back to outlawry. And this neat little story captures the irony of idealizing rebellion and defiance, which one would never want to see happening under one's own authority. And you could see it as reminiscent of other figures like, for instance, lefty academics who extol working-class solidarity, the history of class struggle, but who then reject unionization drives at their own universities. So that sums up the basic, most important themes that I see embedded in the Robin Hood mythos, at least in that earliest form that we can see from the late Middle Ages. Then the final question is, where did it all begin? Is there an original Robin Hood? Was he a purely literary invention? Was there an actual historical Robin Hood? Or is he a mythological creation? So I'm going to discuss the chronology of the earliest clues that have been found to the possible existence and possible origins of the Robin Hood legend in the Middle Ages. And then I'm going to discuss each of those three possibilities and the different strengths and weaknesses of the different hypotheses that Robin Hood is a literary creation, that he was a real historical person, and that he is a mythological creature who was turned into a human figure. So to begin with the chronology, what is the earliest that we can say that a story of Robin Hood as an outlaw man in the forest might have begun. This is a very tricky question because how can one look for the origins of a story of an outlaw called Robin Hood when variations on the name Robert Hood are fairly common? Hood is a somewhat common name in the English language with several different forms and variations. And Robin is a nickname, an informal form, of the name Robert. So if you want to find someone who was called Robin Hood, you have to look for not only a Robin Hood, but also possibly a Robert Hood, or even other forms like Rob, or Hob, or Hobbin, which also sometimes served as nicknames and variations on Robert. So what you're presented with is... Thousands of volumes of legal records, tax records, military records of all sorts that have variations on this name littered all throughout them without indexes in most cases and that have never been scanned or digitized or anything like that. So it's beyond searching for a needle in a haystack. However, there are important variations and anomalies that have been found in the historical record within the past hundred years that might point closer to the possible origins of the story of the outlaw Robin Hood. The first is that in the late 1200s, there are instances that have been found in legal and tax records where people had the surname Robin Hood. So this is not instances of someone with first name Robin, last name Hood, or first name Robert, last name Hood. Rather, they're instances of someone with a first name like, for example, John, and then their last name is written down as Robin Hood, all one word. That's an extremely unusual formation in English. It almost never happens that someone takes an entire name like Clark Kent, and runs it together into one word and then puts that down as their surname. So this suggests that already by this time in the late 1200s some people thought of that entire whole name Robin Hood as somehow specially significant and as a single unit. Even it's remarkable I think that it's endured that way and we still sort of speak that way today when we talk about this person we don't say his name in a normal way that's normal in the english language we don't say there was an outlaw named robin hood we say robin hood with the emphasis more on the first name as if it was all one word that's not how we talk about someone like say the comedian betty white we don't say betty white we say betty white and yet when we talk about this person we say robin hood and it's possible that that pattern, that way of thinking and pronouncing the name goes back all the way here to the 1200s to this single merged name Robin Hood. And there are instances like a woman in London who is cited in tax records as Catherine Robin Hood. Also, the name in this form as a surname is fairly commonly seen. There have been a number of instances found of the name appearing in this way in court records, usually in most, not all, but in most instances, in referring to a bandit or an outlaw. So this right off the bat suggests that maybe this name Robin Hood was adopted or used or applied specially to bandits and outlaws and that there maybe was some notion of an archetypal bandit or outlaw called Robin Hood. There is one particular instance from the year 1262 in Berkshire in Southern England where a bandit is discussed and he has a full name. His first name is William, son of Thomas the blacksmith or something to that effect. Then the following year, he's referred to again in a different court record. It's clearly the same person, but in that one, his name has been changed to William Robin Hood. And this further suggests that Robin Hood was kind of adopted into the language as a kind of occupational surname in the same way that someone might be called Miller or Taylor. Robin Hood was an occupational surname for outlaws. And the historian J.C. Holt argues that this is an early sign of the existence of the legend of Robin Hood, that that figure and some sort of story about him must have already existed at this time. I'm not sure I totally agree with that aspect of the argument. We don't necessarily know that. All that we can say, I think, is just that this is a sign that by this time, by the late 1200s, there was an archetype or a persona that could be referred to as Robin Hood who was connected to banditry. Now after that point through the early and mid-1300s, we really know nothing about what people thought or said about Robin Hood as a person, as a literary figure, as an archetype, a concept, we really don't know. But most likely there was some kind of oral tradition that persisted through the 1300s. Because in 1377, we see the first reference to Robin Hood as a character or an individual. And it's a single line in a famous book called Pierce Plowman by William Langland. And in Pierce Plowman, Langland invents a series of figures who embody the different seven deadly sins. And one of them, the one who represents sloth, is a lazy and ignorant parson who is neglectful of his his religious duties. And there's a line where this character Sloth admits that he does not know his paternoster, the Latin prayer to our father, in the way that a properly educated priest knows it, but he can recite, quote, rhymes of Robin Hood. So this suggests several things. It indicates that there were songs or poems in verse about Robin Hood, that it was normal for people to memorize and recite them, and furthermore that this character was already familiar enough to some audience that Langland could just summarily allude to the character and assume that the audience would know what it was referring to. And this idea that stories, or more specifically, poems or songs of Robin Hood were already widely familiar at this time, is corroborated by evidence from shortly after. So for instance, a manuscript has been found in the library of Cambridge University with a religious tract by a Lollard writer, a religious nonconformist, which probably dates to the 1390s, so maybe somewhere around 20, 25 years after Pierce Plowman. And in this tract, the writer lists off several legendary heroes that common people like to hear, quote, merry tales about. And it lists off four of these heroes, the last of which is Robin Hood. So this is a further indication that he was now a familiar character that people liked to hear stories about. And this reference in this Lollard tract is then followed further after the year 1400 by several instances of preachers complaining about the popularity of Robin Hood. So people in the church started to see him as kind of an annoying competitor for their attention, for the attention of the common people. And one important instance of this is in the book Dives et Pauper*, which was written in about 1405 to 1410 which laments that many people would rather go to the tavern and hear a tale or song of Robin Hood than go and hear mass in church. So now this is an early indication that he was spoken or sung about in taverns. Then after that, after about 1405, many references to Robin Hood in writing start to come thick and fast. He becomes more and more of a presence in the written record, not just in oral stories. For one thing, there are early allusions to familiar lines and sayings from poems or ballads of Robin Hood. And the first one to appear is an invocation, the beginning of a tale, which begins with the words, Robin Hood in Barnsdale stood or Robin Hood in Sherwood stood. And the earliest known appearance of it is in a manuscript in the archives of Lincoln Cathedral, probably written by a monk, where a monk added in a marginal note to a religious manuscript. And he wrote, quote, Robin Hood in Sherwood stood, hooded and hatted, hosed and shod, four and twenty arrows he bore in his hands. So this little note, which may have just been a kind of stray doodle by a bored monk, is very interesting and revealing for a number of reasons. One, it specifically refers to Robin's hood, which I think underscores the fact that his name Hood is evocative of disguise and hiding. Also, he carries 24 arrows, maybe a sort of reference to the 24 hours in the day. And the line is clearly poetic and rhythmic. It probably was the beginning of a song or a poem, but one that is now lost. So that means that there were other familiar songs and poems about Robin Hood passed around that we don't have today and maybe are yet to be rediscovered somewhere. And probably this beginning, at least that first line, Robin Hood in Sherwood stood or Robin Hood in Barnsdale stood, was a widely known formulaic opening that could open many verse stories or songs, sort of like Once Upon a Time that we've all heard at the beginning of a fairy tale. And that line appears again in other writings, in marginal notes, etc. In addition to that line Robin Hood in Sherwood stood, there also appeared a widely known proverb, which is something to the effect of, quote, many will talk of Robin Hood that never shot his bow. And it seems that this was used to express the idea that many people boast about their abilities or their accomplishments, but can't demonstrate them. Again, in about the same time period, about 1405 to 1410, a Benedictine monk wrote down a sermon which contained within it the line, quote, for many, many men saith, speaketh of Robin Hood that shot never in his bow. So this is significant for one thing because this writer quotes it as being already widespread. He specifically says, many men saith. So according to to his account, this was already a known common proverb. Again, it shows up again in later writings, such as in a book about friars from a few years later in 1419. So what we can see from these early quoted lines about Robin Hood, we can see that these little snippets were widely circulated, but they were written down occasionally, most often by monks. Does this mean maybe that monks were particularly interested in stories of Robin Hood? Maybe because many of them were preachers who were concerned with reaching a popular audience and so were aware of popular opinion and lore? Maybe, or possibly not. Maybe it just is that they were more literate and produced more literature, and so it happens that that's where we see these earliest allusions to Robin Hood. But either way, it's very ironic that's where we see these early references because monks are clearly the villains in the early stories. (laughs) So they must have been at least ambivalent in hearing these stories and ballads of Robin Hood. From just a few years later, there is also a reference in a property book from South Yorkshire. There's a reference to a, quote, stone of Robert Hood as a landmark marking the boundaries of a certain tract of property. We don't know who this Robert Hood is or whether it was the same as the Robin Hood of the ballads, but this may be the first appearance of a common pattern that would increase, which is place names being linked to Robin Hood and applied to specific sites around Yorkshire in particular, and then also later Nottinghamshire. And this is the same sort of pattern you see with King Arthur, too, that various stones caves monuments around england came to be named after arthur and linked to some story of arthur and later in the 1400s this so-called stone of robert hood would be followed by robin hood's well also in Yorkshire. So it could be that these references come from Yorkshire folklore about Robin Hood, or it might also be that visitors from southern England, where the Robin Hood legend was more popular, that they maybe, when they went up into the north as tourists, they looked for sites connected to Robin Hood, who was now famous. Then a few years after that, in 1426, the town of Exeter in Devon, down in southwestern England, recorded a payment to players who put on quote a play of robin hood so this is the earliest evidence that's yet been found of dramatization of people performing stories of robin hood impersonating robin hood and his men and again it's early evidence that the stories and songs and now plays of robin hood were mainly popular in the south then, a bit later in the mid 1400s, we get the first possible reference to a specific story of Robin Hood. So, in the famous book How the Plowman Learned His Paternoster, which was written also probably around 1450, there's a passage that describes farmers going to work harvesting and gathering grain, and then as they return home, reciting, quote, a jest of Robin Hood. So it may be that this was simply a way of saying they recite a story, an adventure of Robin Hood, or maybe it's a reference to this specific long narrative poem that I talked about last time, which, it, when it was printed, was titled A Gest of Robin Hood. But either way, by this time, this is now becoming a familiar scene to see peasants, farmers reciting stories themselves about Robin Hood. Also, around this same time, in the mid-1400s, there start to appear early references to Robin Hood in legal and parliamentary records. So it's something that more of the governing elite, not only the churchmen, but also government officials are becoming familiar with. And he's usually invoked with horror and disgust. Whereas according to those earlier references, the populace, the ordinary people, the farmers, the tavern goers love to hear tales of Robin Hood, the governing elite regards him as a villain. And for example, in 1439, a group of tenants in Staffordshire wrote a petition to Parliament complaining about a bandit named Pierce Venables, and the petition says that he, quote, in manner of insurrection, went into the woods in that country, like as it had been Robin Hood and his men. So it may be here that these petitioners, who are ordinary tenants, that maybe they're just using Robin Hood in a neutral, illustrative sense. Or it may be that they're invoking him to sort of inflame the fears, the prejudices of Parliament. And just two years later in 1441 was the reported incident in Norfolk when robbers went out onto the roads and reportedly chanted, quote, we are Robin Hood's men, war, war, war. So, In this case, you certainly have common people who are invoking Robin Hood specifically to create fear, right? We are a real threat. And this reference is followed by many others around the year 1450, such as when there was a rebellion in Kent and the leader of the rebel group called himself Bluebeard, but his henchmen were called the King of the Fairies, the Queen of the Fairies, and Robin Hood. So by now, it seems to be kind of a convention to take the name of Robin Hood in order to make yourself a frightening, threatening rebel. Then after 1450, many have been found, including some intriguing recent discoveries within the last few decades. And one of them is a strange, cryptic, apparently nonsense poem written around 1452, which starts with the lines, quote, Robin Hood in Barnsdale stood. So again, invoking that familiar opening line. Robin Hood in Barnsdale stood. He leaned him till a maple thistle. Then came Our Lady and sweet St. Andrew. So there's this sort of stringing together of of images, Barnsdale, trees, St. Mary, again, Our Lady. But from there, the poem kind of spins out and becomes impossible to decipher. Then also from a few years later in the library of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, there is a copy of a chronicle of, of the history of Britain. And recently it was found to have a marginal note handwritten, probably in the 1460s. And the marginal note says, quote, Around this time, according to popular opinion, A certain outlaw named Robin Hood with his accomplices infested Sherwood and other law-abiding areas of England with continuous robberies. So clearly here there's a negative view of Robin Hood as a menace and annoyance, which makes more sense of what we might expect from a churchman. And the note is attached to lines in the chronicle dealing with the 1290s. So apparently, according to this writer's view, that is when Robin Hood was active in the 1290s, which seems to make sense with other, again, other clues we've seen in the content of the legend. Now, lastly, we should note that in the early 1400s to the early 1500s, there were occasional explicit references to Robin Hood in historical chronicles, specifically Scottish chronicles. So for whatever reason, chroniclers in Scotland were the first to take Robin Hood seriously as a historical personage and integrate him into the body of their narrative. So various Scottish chroniclers refer to him and they place his career at various times in the past. So the earliest one we know of is in the year 1420. The Scottish chronicler Andrew of Winton wrote a chronicle of Britain in verse. And he places Robin Hood under the years 1283 to 85. So Andrew of Winton says, quote, Then Little John and Robin Hood, as forest outlaws, were well-renowned in Inglewood and Barnsdale. All this time they plied their trade. Winton is putting him in the late 1200s, not far off from what we then see in that marginal note from the University of St. Andrews. He matches him up with Little John, so that accords with the ballads, and he puts him in Barnsdale, also consistent with the ballads, but he also says Inglewood and Barnsdale. So this is a rare instance of a reference claiming that he was active also in northwestern England in this forest of Inglewood, which is up near Carlisle and is reputed in other texts to also be a haunt of outlaws. A couple decades later, in the 1440s, another Scottish chronicler named Walter Bower added a passage into an old traditional Scottish chronicle called the Scotto Chronicon, and so in the section for the year 1266, Walter Bauer added the line, quote, Then arose the famous murderer, Robin Hood, as well as Little John, together with their accomplices from among the dispossessed, whom the foolish populace are so inordinately fond of celebrating, both in tragedy and comedy. So there's a lot packed into this little reference here put into the Scotto Chronicon. For one thing, it explicitly refers to the popularity of the stories of Robin Hood. It again matches him up with his henchman, Little John, and alludes to a sort of band, a larger band, who in some way are dispossessed. So this is an early instance of trying to account for Robin Hood's and his men's behavior by reference to dispossession, although that does not appear in any of the surviving ballads that we see. He makes it clear that there was a variety of stories circulating about Robin Hood with different styles, some more comic, some more tragic. And he again emphasizes this split between elite and popular opinion, saying the populace likes these stories, but they are foolish because this man is a murderer. And lastly, the date. So as I said, he connects Robin Hood to 1266 and it happens that that is 1 year after a massive uprising in England led by Simon de Montfort which demanded various rights and powers for the populace and led to the convocation of the first parliament Simon de Montfort is sometimes celebrated as the father of parliament although he was an outlaw rebel and so if we take Walter Bower seriously it suggests that maybe Robin Hood and his outlaw band arose in the aftermath of the Simon de Montfort uprising. But again, he's the only one who specifically points to this year, 1266. Several decades later, in 1521, so at this time Robin Hood has now become a common theatrical character, a figure of pageantry. In 1521, another Scottish chronicler named John Major writes a chronicle called History of Greater Britain and in this one he says that Robin Hood was active during the time of Richard I in the 1190s. So each of these Scottish chroniclers puts Robin Hood at a progressively earlier date. First the 1280s, then the 1260s, now the 1190s. And it happens that John Major's claim that he was active under King Richard I, this is the one that sticks. And it's taken up and repeated by other English and Scottish chroniclers for decades after. And it really sticks to this day. We still today associate Robin Hood with Richard I, his time on crusade, and his power struggle with Prince John. And shortly after, most importantly, the famous English antiquarian John Leland, who is sort of the court antiquarian for Henry VIII, he records Robin Hood as being active in Barnsdale and as having died and been buried at Kirklees, which is consistent with the surviving early ballads, including a jest of Robin Hood and Robin Hood's death. And thereafter, later English antiquarians all through the 1500s and into the 1600s add more claims about Robin Hood, like th- that he was born at Locksley, which is a sort of country manor in Yorkshire. But these are mostly unsupported. We don't know what their sources might have been. Some of them just allude vaguely to old manuscripts and some of them cite no source at all. And you see wild variation sometimes in claims about where or when he was born, when he died, and what authority figures he battled with. So if these are the main earliest references that have been found that tell us something about what people were thinking or saying about Robin Hood and his career... Should we suppose that there was a historical Robin Hood that the story can be traced back to? Is there a real man behind the legend? Well, let's consider first the points in favor of a historical Robin Hood. For one thing, when we look at the earliest sources that talk about him, they always see him and understand him as a real historical person. As I said, there were historical chronicles seriously listed him in their histories. Also, when people talked about the popularity of the story of Robin Hood, they always understood him to be a real person, you know, like the marginal note saying he is an infamous murderer. Also, there is the style and content of the early ballads, in particular, the pervasive realism Which I talked about last time. The fact that in all the stories there is no magic, no sorcery, no transformation, no magical creatures like dragons or fairies or witches. There's also the realistic consistency with the behaviors of actual outlaws the robbery, the abduction, the violent acts and killing, the killing of witnesses. Also, there's the real settings. Although some settings in some stories are more vague and some are more detailed and specific, as I'll talk about more later, all of them are real places. Sherwood, Nottingham, Barnsdale, Kirklees, and so on. There are also the parallel examples of figures who seem to have actually lived and whose names or aliases then got taken up into folklore. An important example that I mentioned before is Friar Tuck, it's very likely that there was a real historical inspiration of Friar Tuck. A chaplain named William Stafford abandoned his post in Sussex and went out and became a rebel in 1417. So if we can see in the surviving historical record that this happened with the figure of Friar Tuck, it stands to reason that the same thing could have happened with Robin Hood. And there is a possible candidate There are actually many possible candidates, most of them very weak and only very tenuously connected to the story of Robin Hood. But there is one who has been traditionally regarded as a favorite and the most strongly connected to the legend, and that is Robert Hood of Wakefield. So in the 1840s, an archivist in Yorkshire named Joseph Hunter He began, you could say, the quest for the historical Robin Hood. You know, around the same time that people were getting into higher criticism and in early quest for the historical Jesus and so on, this archivist decided that he had access to enough legal records, property records around Yorkshire and other parts of England that he should start searching for a Robin Hood or Robert Hood who fits the tale. And he had to know where to look. How could he narrow down a place or time that seemed like a plausible setting where the real original Robin Hood might be found? So he looked through the early ballads, also the jest of Robin Hood, which is the longest and richest early narrative of Robin Hood. And, you know, there are incidents with a knight with a very common name. There are incidents with a sheriff of Nottingham who's unnamed. But there was one incident in the jest that stands out as significant and the most likely to be recorded in surviving documents if it really happened. And that is Robin Hood's meeting with the king, who is called King Edward, in the forest, where Robin Hood receives a pardon from the king and agrees to enter royal service well, the goings-on, the doings, and the travels of a king would be pretty well recorded. Joseph Hunter looked into the jest, sees that this king is called Edward, and it happens that only three Edwards ruled in England in the High or Late Middle Ages. So if we put aside Edward the Confessor, who was many centuries earlier, very unlikely to have any connection to Robin Hood, there were three kings, Edward, Edward I, II, and III, who ruled from the year 1277 to 1372. So that's a range of 95 years in which to look for an event or incident that resembles King Edward's pursuit of Robin Hood as described in the jest and his meeting with Robin Hood. Well, it happens that out of those three kings, Edward I, II, and III, only one of them made a long journey or progress through the north in pursuit of outlaws and that was edward ii and edward ii made a progress through the north in the year 1323 so this was in the close aftermath of a large rebellion that had happened the year before when the earl of lancaster joined together various northern potentates raised armies and rebelled against edward ii in the year 1322 So in the following year, there were still sort of breakaway bands trying to resist royal authority and hiding out in the various rugged wild areas of the North. The text of the jest of Robin Hood refers to Robin Hood seeking out shelter and being pursued by the king through different forests and woods in the North, specifically in Lancashire, And there's one passage that even refers to a specific place called Plumpton, which was a royal forest in Lancashire. So this sets it apart as a bit different from most of the stories, which of course take place in Yorkshire or Sherwood Forest. And then following after this passage about the king's pursuit of Robin Hood in Lancashire, which was the main center and base of the Earl of Lancaster's rebellion, It then says that the king withdrew to Nottingham, stayed for a time in Nottingham, then went and sought and found Robin Hood, granted him a pardon, and then took Robin Hood into his service for 15 months. So with these clues, Hunter looked for a possible Robert or Robin Hood from Yorkshire, who might have been involved in the rebellion, might have been outlawed, and then subsequently met the king, received a pardon, and entered the king's service. It seemed that such a person might appear in the existing records, and that could be an identification of the real Robin Hood. Well, what Hunter found was documents attesting to a man named Robert Hood of Wakefield, which is a large town in sort of the southwestern corner of Yorkshire on the edge of Barnsdale. So basically the sort of area where you might want to find an original Robin Hood. And this Robert Hood of Wakefield and his wife Matilda are recorded as buying a small plot of land, maybe for a house, on top of a hill called Bick Hill near Wakefield in 1316. So this person at least existed and was living and held some small bit of property in South Yorkshire at around the time just before the Earl of Lancaster's rebellion. So from there, Hunter speculates that maybe this Robert Hood may have been part of the rebellion under the Earl of Lancaster. Then after living for a time as an outlaw, he may have met the king at Nottingham or Sherwood like described in The Jest. And according to the royal government records, the king did travel around, going to places in Lancashire, including inspecting forests and woods, and then for a time went to Nottingham in November 1323. So it seems as if the facts and the story in The Jest so far align close enough. And further, Hunter then found in the records of the royal court and the royal entourage that in the king's company there was a servant porter called Robin Hood who was in the king's service through most of 1324 so that's the year after this progress through the north and he then left the king's service and was given a final payout in November 1324. Thus far, it seems to fit with the story of the jest that there was a Robert Hood of Wakefield who then could have become a rebel, an outlaw, then encountered the king when he took up residence in the autumn of 1323 in Nottingham and then received a pardon and entered the king's service for a brief period for only about a year. All of this seems to match up So this has made Robert Hood of Wakefield the most popular candidate for a possible original historical Robin Hood. And Hunter put forward this argument in an essay, but in a very tentative and uncertain way. He does not claim that he has caught the culprit. He just says that in his view, it is more than likely that the story of Robin Hood originated from this real person, Robert Hood of Wakefield, and the clues seem to line up. So if there are all these reasons to suppose that there was a historical Robin Hood and we seem to have a good candidate for the office... The question then is, well, why would one think that Robin Hood is purely literary and does not have a historical basis? So what is the case for a literary Robin Hood and reasons to object to the idea of a historical Robin Hood? Well, for one thing, while it is true that several chroniclers, especially Scottish chroniclers, did refer to Robin Hood as a real person in their chronicles. Nonetheless, there is tremendous confusion and contradiction among them. The dates of his supposed career are constantly shifting, usually getting earlier from one instance to the next. None of the chronicles give him any birth date or place of birth or parentage, and the claimed dates of his death are uncertain. So only later in the 15 and 1600s did some antiquarians start to claim that they had found a grave or a tomb or some old document referring to when he died, and those are constantly changing. And no place of birth either is referred to until the 1500s when there are a couple of allusions to Locksley. If you look at the ballads and tales of Robin Hood, they lack any sort of biography, There are no identifying details anywhere in the ballads or the jest. No explanation as to parents, family, previous occupation, or walk of life that he might have come from. There is no reason provided for why he became an outlaw. No backstory at all. And hence, it's fitting that the cliche repeated line that people invoked about Robin Hood was this opening line, Robin Hood in Sherwood stood. Because the story seems to always just begin abruptly with him in the woods. He just, in a sense, seems to spring from the woods themselves without any previous real life. And while it is true that chroniclers talked about him as a real person, the earliest allusions back before 1420 are all literary. If we think of Langland's book Pierce Plowman, it refers to, quote, rhymes of Robin Hood. And Also, those early repeated lines like Robin Hood and Sherwood stood, or many will speak of Robin Hood that never shot his bow, they're all in verse, as if they were plucked out of poems or songs. And if you look again at that that proverb that became popular, many will speak of Robin Hood that never shot his bow, it's in Terza Rima, it's in this four-beat, three-beat rhythmic scheme, just like... most of the surviving ballads. All the earliest references that we can find that talk about Robin Hood are all quotations from songs and poems. Those earliest references are not documents talking about him as a living person, but as a literary subject. And as I referred to previously in the first part, the name Robin Hood really seems invented. It's too perfect. There's the triple resonance of the name hood to a cloak being hidden, to the wood, and to good, Robin the good, and also the reference to the word rob in in the first name, which is appropriate for a thief and a bandit. If we look at the stories, it's true that metaphysically they're realistic, but the plot lines are not realistic. He shows an impossible cleverness, a superhuman accuracy with bow and arrow, And there are also ridiculous claims about his opponents, who are unbelievably credulous, who never realize that Robin Hood is in disguise and tricking them. So in all of these ways, you can say, well, the metaphysics is not magical, but the storylines are clearly tall tales. And further, there are constant repeated borrowings from other earlier outlaw tales. So as I said, there was kind of this matter of the Greenwood that had developed over the centuries through the Middle Ages, and there are stereotypical cliche incidents that appear in earlier outlaw stories that then are borrowed and repurposed for Robin Hood. For instance, when he disguises himself as a potter and is able to deceive the sheriff and his wife and gain entrance to their household, That incident is taken from the old chronicle of the rebel hero Hereward the Wake, who was a nobleman, an Anglo-Saxon nobleman, who had gone abroad to Europe, was in Europe in 1066 when the Normans invade and conquer England. His estate is seized, his family is killed. So Heriward reportedly then goes to England and takes up the life of an outlaw in the Fens, this sort of swampy lands in Eastern England, and carries on a rebellion against William the Conqueror. And in the Chronicle of Heriward the Wake, he's described as disguising himself as a potter in order to gain admittance into King William's household. Then similarly, if we think of the stag trick, when the cook takes the sheriff of Nottingham in The Jest of Robin Hood, he takes the sheriff of Nottingham to Sherwood Forest and tells him he's seen a green stag in the wood that the sheriff ought to go pursue, that trick is taken from the chronicle of an earlier outlaw named Fulk Fitzwarren, who carried on a rebellion against King John based in the sort of rugged Western borderlands or Welsh marches along the border of England and Wales. And in that story, it's Fulk Fitzwarren who uses this trick in order to lure in and capture King John. And then even if we go down to fine details like the money trick where Robin Hood asks His captives how much money they have, then searches them, and if they have more than they admitted to, he takes the excess. That trick is taken from the stories of a French outlaw named Eustace the Monk, who was a monk in the early 1200s, but then after his family is attacked, he leaves the monastery and becomes an outlaw bandit in order to try to avenge his family's deaths, And he, at one point, eventually he goes to sea and lands and takes over the island of Sark in the English Channel and becomes a kind of medieval pirate preying upon shipping. But that money trick was first attributed to Eustace and later then shows up as Robin Hood's trick. So this raises the question then of whether the stories of Robin Hood are actually just a tissue of borrowed stories and cliches and plot devices from other earlier heroes. And more broadly, the whole scenario of Robin Hood as this outlaw kind of chieftain or captain in the woods keeping up a fight against authority figures like the Sheriff of Nottingham This scenario seems to be patterned on other earlier outlaw tales, which are believed to be entirely fictional, such as, for instance, the story of Gamelin, which comes from the 1300s, so a little earlier than the surviving Robin Hood stories, who is a younger son of a noble family. He's dispossessed, denied his inheritance by his elder brother, And he has great fighting prowess, but he retreats into the woods, joins an outlaw band, then comes back and fights his brother, gets revenge, and claims his rightful place. And also the Robin Hood stories sometimes are amazingly close, almost identical, to a similar story of an outlaw called Adam Bell and his two sidekicks named Clim of the Clue and William Cloudsley, who hide out in Inglewood, in that forest in northwestern England, which, according to one of our chroniclers, was also a site of Robin Hood's activities, and who at one point, when one of the band is captured and soon to be hanged, the outlaws charge in and attack the sheriff and rescue and free the prisoner, both of these earlier legendary outlaws like Gamelin and Adam Bell fight either the sheriff or the court magistrates and jury and can be seen as sort of parables about the fight against corruption in much the same way as Robin Hood. So if we combine these echoes in the Robin Hood stories of earlier outlaw tales, they appear almost formulaic, cliche, and if you combine that with the lack of any biography no parentage, no birth, no upbringing. It can seem as if he's merely an imaginary figure who sort of springs from the imagination and from the wood itself, more just an archetype than a real person. And finally, if we consider the Robert of Wakefield theory as the best supported, most plausible basis for historical Robin Hood, That theory has been pretty firmly debunked by new evidence. Firstly, a palimpsest or sort of an old erased text of an account has been found that bears on Hunter's theory that Robert Hood of Wakefield was pardoned and entered the King's service and becomes the Robin Hood who is employed as a porter in the King's entourage. Well, part of why this story seemed possible was because there were various accounts that include payouts to Robin Hood in the king's service in 1324, so the year after Edward II went on his progress through the north. But there were no surviving accounts from the year 1323 itself, and so it was wide open exactly when this Robin Hood began working for the king. It could have been, plausibly, in November 1323 when the king was in Nottingham, and in that case it would match the story in the jest. But this palimpsest has been found, which now with modern technology can be read, and This palimpsest shows earlier payments made out to servants in the king's entourage during the progress in 1323, and it includes payments made to Robin Hood, a porter in the king's company in June 1323. So that means that he was in the king's employ before the king went to Nottingham. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's not the Robin Hood we're looking for. It could be that the pardon and the entry into the king's service happened at some previous point earlier and not in Nottingham. That's still possible, but still it does make the story more divergent from the account in A Gest of Robin Hood and so it makes that connection, that parallel, weaker than it seemed before also scholars have pointed out that this robin hood continued in the king's service until november 1324 at which time he was discharged because he was quote no longer able to work and that can be taken to mean he had become old or maybe sick or infirm So that also does not align well with the story in the jest according to which Robin Hood merely skipped out and disappeared into the woods and never even settled accounts with the king. The jest is very clear on that point. So again that might mean that the story was simply changed in the retelling into the form we see in the jest but it does make the two incidents even more different and further apart. Furthermore, as many have pointed out, it is rather awkward to identify the king in the jest with Edward II. Edward II was understood to be good-looking, so In the jest, the king is referred to as our comely King Edward, so thus far it seems to be a reasonable identification. But Edward II was highly unpopular for a variety of reasons, including his lavish favors and offices that he bestowed upon his male lovers. So in in these ways, it's hard to match him up with the king who is so gracious, so courteous, so clement to Robin Hood, and further, the description of him as, quote, our comely King Edward matches exactly with known references to the later King Edward III, who ruled in the mid-1300s. There are surviving stories of Edward III, who was very popular, and respected in the country there were stories of him going in disguise out among the common people to meet them and hear their opinions so in this way it seems as if the king edward in the jest is much more reminiscent of edward iii but of course edward iii never went on a progress through the north nothing like what's described in the jest so this calls into question the whole idea that the incident in the jest can be matched up with any real historical evidence at all. Now more fundamentally than that, the suppositions that Joseph Hunter originally made that allowed him to try to match up the Robert Hood of Wakefield with Robin Hood the porter is flimsy or non-existent. For one thing, there is no actual evidence at all to connect Robert Hood of Wakefield to the rebellion and no evidence at all to support the idea that he became an outlaw or a bandit. And this has sometimes been claimed. There have been antiquarians and amateur researchers motivated probably by a lot of wishful thinking who claimed that they found documents that showed that the small plot of land on Bick Hill that Robert Hood and his wife bought was later seized as the property of rebels, but this was in fact a misreading. They were not the same properties at all, and none of it had anything to do with the rebellion anyway. So it seems like really is just that The apparent matchups of a Robert Hood in Wakefield and a Robin Hood in the King's Service could easily just be coincidences, a coincidence of two individuals with a somewhat common name who in some way were connected either to Yorkshire or King Edward II, but past that they don't really line up with the story. So hence, one could make the case that there is no good historical figure to connect to Robin Hood and that he is better understood as a purely literary invention. Okay, so now what about the last hypothesis, which is sometimes popular among enthusiasts of folklore and mythology? The notion that Robin Hood is originally a mythological creature, a sort of god or spirit of the wood or of spring who has been put into a human disguise? Well, firstly, there is a sort of long-standing customary theory about a mythological Robin Hood that first arose in the Victorian age during the great fashion for folklore and folk magic. And this theory points firstly to the similarity between Robin Hood and so-called Robin Goodfellow, which is one common name for a mythic forest spirit or fairy who watches people from the woods and tests them, inspects their behavior, their possessions, much like Robin Hood does, the people that he robs along the road. And this Robin Goodfellow is sometimes theorized to be a name or a form of an earlier mythic god of the wood called Puck, an old nature god that probably comes from a Norse or Germanic root and who persisted in English folklore, even so far as to appear in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. So there is a sort of basic prima facie basis to suspect that Robin Hood is a sort of trickster or fairy or wood spirit or deity that persisted in folklore and eventually, for one reason or another, was transmuted into a human bandit. In addition to this, there are apparent magical elements that one can see in the two ballads that survive from the Percy folio, which are Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne and Robin Hood's death. So if we look at Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne, it starts off with apparently a prophetic dream where Robin Hood sees his attackers and which is never explained how he had prophetic premonition. When he does encounter this nemesis in the person of Guy of Gisborne, Guy is said to be wearing a horsehair cloak complete with mane and tail which would have been something very strange in the Middle Ages. And it raises the question of why. What, what does that mean? What does it represent? And furthermore, does it mean something? Is it symbolic that after Robin Hood defeats Guy of Gisborne, he takes the cloak from him and puts it on? This whole incident seems to emphasize the difference, the sort of opposite nature of Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne, Robin Hood who is always in green, and Guy of Gisburne, who is wearing this heavy dark animal cloak. It suggests possibly a contrast between winter and spring the warm furs of winter, and the light green clothing of spring. And hence, one might wonder if the two characters perhaps are spirits or personifications of winter and spring. And hence, Robin Hood's defeat of Guy represents the triumph of spring over winter. The spring spirit defeats winter and takes on his power, The whole story also evokes many common stories and folkloric motifs of animal transformation, stories about people who become part animal and are able to borrow the power of the animal world, which is also the spirit world and the world of the dead. And if we look back at Guy of Gisborne specifically, where he sort of emerges from the woods wearing this horsehair cloak with mane and tail covering over his body, it's closely reminiscent of the figure of the hobby horse. So the hobby horse is a life-sized horse puppet, which is then dressed up in hides to sort of mimic a real living horse, which is traditionally paraded around in the May games. So remember, the May games are these long spring celebrations that were very popular in the 1500s in so-called Merry England and that also customarily involved Robin Hood and people dressing up and impersonating Robin Hood and his men. The hobby horse is traditional in the May games and it's often led around the town and then out and sort of cast out like a defeated invader or an overthrown ruler And folklorists have theorized that the hobby horse is maybe a symbol of winter, or maybe originally a figure of an animal deity that has since been forgotten, but the custom of making a hobby horse in the May games has persisted. So if we interpret Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne in this way, it seems to answer some questions. If we simply suppose that both of these figures, Robin and Guy, are kind of humanized representations of what had previously been spiritual or mythological figures, then if we look at Robin Hood's death, there are some similar problems there is again a suggestion of some sort of prophecy. So in this ballad, when Robin is going to the Priory of Kirklees in order to try to get life-saving treatment from the prioress, he encounters people on the way, one of whom is on a bridge cursing Robin Hood, pronouncing some sort of ban or curse, and then he meets a group of people who are weeping and mourning for Robin Hood as if he is already dead. So why would these elements be in the story? Well, if we think of the woman on the bridge, bridges are often seen as passages between worlds, places where someone crosses over into the spirit world or the world of the dead, which makes sense if you think of Robin Hood as approaching death, which the audience of this ballad would have known. It's called Robin Hood's Death. So in this light, we can see Robin's death as somehow foreordained or fated in a way that bystanders could understand, but Robin Hood himself could not. He was sort of inevitably led to act out a ritualized death that he didn't anticipate. So if we think of how Robin Hood dies, it's by slow bleeding. This traitorous churchwoman bleeds him to excess with the, the goal of taking away his strength and killing him. And this can be seen then if we think of Robin Hood again as representing the spirit of spring and summer, as he did in contexts like the May Games, then maybe his death represents a sun god or a summer god being slowly drained and weakened as summer gives way to autumn. And so in this way, perhaps Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne and Robin Hood's death, which were both found together in the Percy Folio, form a cycle, either a complete or partial cycle that includes Robin Hood's rise, his triumph over the winter god, the god of death, and then concludes with his defeat and fall from power. So all in all, it seems as if this theory may have something to it and that, in fact, maybe we can trace the origins of Robin Hood to a sort of mythological cycle connected to the sun and the seasons. However, there are a number of weaknesses to this whole approach. One is if we think of the parallels between Robin Hood and Robin Goodfellow, this fairy leader or puck, these folkloric stories are not attested early. They mostly come from the Renaissance, from the same time that Robin Hood was already a popular figure. There is not firm evidence showing that they trace back earlier. Rather, they date to basically the same time. And Then if we think also of the figure of the hobby horse, who maybe is connected to Guy of Gisborne, the hobby horse, again, it might go back to medieval or ancient practices, but there is no certain reference saying that any hobby horse was created from any earlier than the 1570s. So the problem here is that if we look at folklore, it might be easy to find the sort of supernatural phantasmic elements or the magical elements and just assume that those must be older. But that's not necessarily true. We don't know that that's the case. And the Victorian mentality tended to assume that underneath the sort of innocuous veneer of peasant custom and Christian tradition, there must then be an underlying substratum of ancient pagan tradition and they sort of habitually found images, stories, and tried to somehow connect them back to ancient pagan roots, which served this sort of nationalist mission of finding and excavating a deep national culture underlying conventional Christian society. And this often led them to misinterpret practices or ideas as much more ancient than they really were and there's an interesting story about a Victorian folklorist who actually went and studied the May Game festivals in small towns in western England where they still persisted in the 1800s and there's an example where one of these folklorists went one year and saw a man dressed as a woman leading the hobby horse and they assumed that this meant that the the person, the figure leading the hobby horse represented a sort of androgynous god, um, a combination of male and female principles that in some way then battled or defeated the hobby horse. Then they went again the following year and they saw that same person dressed as a clown leading the hobby horse. And they were upset because this seemed to violate the tradition. And they approached this person and said, you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to be dressed as a woman. And the reveler said, there's no correct way to do this ritual. We just do what we want. It's for fun. So this shows how it could be easy to misinterpret folk traditions, which might be new and constantly evolving. And assume that they must be fixed and they must go back into pre Christian antiquity. So it can be easy then to apply this misapprehension, of course, to Robin Hood and to think that behind the story of Robin Hood must be some ancient pagan lineage. Now, further, if we do grant the idea that the stories of Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne and Robin Hood's death in particular, that they are somehow connected to the May games and the figures of the May king and the hobby horse. Even if that's true, that doesn't necessarily mean that therefore they have pagan roots or that there's some sort of deeper mythology behind them. Rather, it might be the reverse. It may be that these figures met first in ritual, So something that I've found myself and that I have referred to before is that it can be easy to suppose that myths are fundamental and prior to rituals, and that rituals are simply created as ways of dramatizing myths. But just as often, it can be the reverse. The ritual act can come first, and then the myth can be created as a backstory to account for it. So at any point in the Middle Ages or even as late as the 15th century, it may be that Robin Hood and the hobby horse were separately adopted into May game pageants and performances. And then the story of the battle between Robin and Guy of Gisborne was formulated to give a gloss, to give an explanation of the spectacle. And in that way, people may have been doing the same thing that this Victorian folklorist did when they saw the man dressed as a woman leading the hobby horse, they created a myth as a backstory to explain what they were seeing. So, the relationship between myth and ritual is not unidirectional, and hence, the mere fact that we see these strange connections between Robin Hood ballads and figures in the May games doesn't necessarily tell us where either one originated. Okay, now nonetheless, with all of that being said, I would still say that in my view, there is a case to be made for connections between the Robin Hood story, folklore, and mythology that might tell us more about where Robin Hood came from. And that relates in particular to Robin Hood's status as an outlaw, which as I said, is so symbolically freighted. So the outlaw is a person outside of civilization, who in effect is legally dead, and hence can be said to straddle the line between the living and the dead, is sort of a walking dead, you might say. And in European folklore and mythology, this line between the living and the dead is customarily also understood as the line between the physical realm and the spirit realm, and between the human world and the animal world. And as I've said before, researchers like Carlo Ginsberg and Ava Potch have found many prevalent stories of shamanic people in Europe who are able to travel between these worlds, between the realm of the living and the dead, and who often also transform into animal forms or have animal heads. So all of this should sound familiar. A lot of these themes are my hobby horses, right, that I keep returning to. But in this relation, I also have to bring up again the close association between Robin Hood and Saint Mary, which is referred to in every early ballad. Why is there this close connection of Robin Hood and the Virgin Mary? She may serve, as I said, as a kind of surrogate family, a surrogate female companion that does not exist in his band in the Greenwood, But also, there are further associations with Mary that probably audiences in the 1400s would have known of. For instance, the common association of Mary with the moon. And there was a fashion in art, especially in Northern Europe in the 15th century, of showing Mary in connection with the moon, such as standing or seated on the crescent moon, And the sort of theological explanation behind this was that Mary could be identified with the woman of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation, who is seen emerging from the moon. The moon is also inherently important to hunters. Hunters use the light of the moon to hunt prey, both human hunters and also animal hunters like wolves, who are known to hunt under the full moon and to howl at the moon and the connection between hunters and the moon is illustrated in certain long-standing myths such as orion who is sort of the greek version of the cosmic hunter a figure who pursues a moon goddess and in greco-roman myth of course that is artemis or diana who is a goddess of the hunt, the mistress of animals, and also an embodiment of the moon, and is virginal like the moon. And there were persistent stories in much of Europe, not just in the Greco-Roman world, but in Europe through the Middle Ages and on into the 1500s, there were persistent stories of shamanic quasi-animal people who are able to go out at night on certain nights of the year And meet with this moon goddess who is the patroness of animals and of the hunt, and who was called by various names including Herodia, Herodiana, and Percta. And as I said, there were specific animals who were especially associated with the moon, like wolves, who are nocturnal, who howl at the moon, and some of these people, especially in northern Europe, some of these shamanic people who went out in the forms of animals, particularly transformed into wolves. This is where we get the werewolf story from, people who have this special ability during the full moon to change into wolf form. Human hunters, too, were like the shamanic people. The human hunters could also be seen as sort of animalistic. They are predators, they stalk their prey, and as I said, in medieval England, the outlaw was customarily referred to as a wolf or as having a wolf's head. So they are dangerous, they are nocturnal, and they are part animal, and through the wolf, I would argue associated with the moon and later literature that shows some similar themes and allusions to the robin hood story underscore i think this association of outlaws and hunters with the moon and with a sort of parallel nocturnal world governed in some way by the moon in contrast with the licit world of law and order and royal authority that is connected to the sun so this sort of dichotomy between the lunar world and the solar world is spelled out for instance in shakespeare's henry the fourth part one Shakespeare was clearly very interested in folklore. A lot of what we know about surviving English folklore is actually from plays like Midsummer Night's Dream. But in Henry IV, Part I, this is a play that takes place in the early 1400s, that contains allusions to Robin Hood, and that clearly is interested in this kind of nocturnal outlaw underworld as it was understood to exist in late medieval England. So, the Henry IV plays are actually not mainly about Henry IV. They're about his son, called Prince Hal, who, when he is young, leaves the world of the court and spends most of his time cavorting, hanging out with thieves and bandits and wastrels in the sort of demi monde of the taverns around London. And the play sets up a dichotomy between the daylit world of the court and the palace and the night world of the taverns. And the most famous character, of course, is not Hal, but Hal's fat, witty, mischievous old friend named Falstaff. And in scene two, in a sort of establishing scene where we see Hal and Falstaff, Hal teases Falstaff for sleeping late and wasting much of the day. And Falstaff has a typically witty response, and he says, quote, Let not us that are squires of the night's body be called thieves of the day's beauty. Let us be Diana's foresters, gentlemen of the shade, minions of the moon, and let men say we be men of good government, being governed as the sea is by our noble and chaste mistress the moon, under whose countenance we steal." So Falstaff, in this very, you know, overblown language, is proposing that he belongs to this kind of alternate world, this world governed by the moon instead of the sun. He specifically invokes the goddess Diana and describes these bandits as Diana's foresters, gentlemen of the shade. So again, the connection to Robin Hood, the sort of archetypal forester, is pretty unavoidable. And the later parts of the play, as well as Henry IV Part Two, have references to Robin Hood stories. For instance, Falstaff's sort of dumb old companion, Master Shallow, at one point sings lines of a popular Robin Hood song, referring to Robin and Little John and Will Scarlet. And there's a sort of suggestion, a hint you could say in the plays that Falstaff himself is sort of like an old over the hill Robin Hood who is now just sort of boozing and whoring and reminiscing about his exploits as a bandit. And the plays, I would think, I would argue, suggest that by the 1590s, when Shakespeare started writing about Henry IV, the Robin Hood mythos was still widely known and could be alluded to, but it was already seen as old-fashioned and fading out but there was this enduring awareness of the association between the Robin Hood stories and the moon, and the idea of an alternate realm or kingdom under the moon, a nighttime kingdom, that is parallel and independent of the world of the king. And there are later points in the plays as well where the prince refers to himself as being like the sun, and arguing that while he associates with these bandits and criminals, he is like the sun hiding behind clouds that will eventually emerge and present himself to the world in his full majesty. So Hal himself is sort of the crossover. He's the link. He's learning about the common world, the low world, but he's preparing to be king, and he will cross this boundary between the two worlds. And I think a lot of these associations then are summed up also in another scene where one of Prince Hal's enemies describes him and his band coming together and preparing for battle. So there is a dramatization of the Battle of Shrewsbury where Prince Hal helps put down a rebellion. And so his enemy describes. Hal and his band in these very interesting, ambiguous terms uh, in, that are both re- reverential and mocking at the same time. And he says that, quote, they are all plumed like estridges that with the wind baited like eagles have lately bathed, glittering in golden coats like images, as full of spirit as the month of May and gorgeous as the sun at midsummer, wanton as youthful goats, Wild as young bulls. So, this little passage underscores all kinds of associations and it likens Hal and his band to the same sort of images connected with Robin Hood. They are animals like goats and bulls. They represent May and midsummer, the power of spring. They have feathers. There are these repeated references to Robin Hood's feathered arrows and here we have the eagle feathers and so this imagery around hal and his band i think was probably inspired by the male bands seen in the may games right where people would dress up as this band of bandits from the greenwood but in by this time those figures in the traditional may games were now seen increasingly as ridiculous and comic and old-fashioned So the May games were by now starting to fade out and even Robin Hood himself was fading out of popularity. But even that being said, if we take this as sort of a last gasp of the mythology of Robin Hood as people understood it at that time, Robin Hood was clearly caught up in a tight web or maybe a circle of mythic associations. Robin Hood is connected to Mary his patron saint, to whom he's devoted, who in turn is linked with the moon and with the virginal huntress, who is a moon goddess, who rules over hunters and human-animal hybrid figures like werewolves. And wolves, in turn, are connected to outlaws, who are called wolves or wolf's heads, and that is a category that includes Robin Hood. So there is, you could say, a sort of complete referential alternate world here that Robin Hood fits into. And so with these associations, the Greenwood can be seen as this parallel world, its own alternate kingdom within a kingdom operating by different laws, a primitive primal law of nature, a law of night associated with animals, with the power of spring, the moon, the divine feminine principle. And Robin Hood represents the sort of male ruler who presides over this alternate lunar world, this nocturnal world that in turn is linked to the moon goddess. So from this, should we suppose that Robin Hood is a creation of the lore and mythology around the moon and animal transformation? Maybe not. Maybe these are just traits, ideas, associations that were in the air, in mythology, in literature, maybe classical mythology, that got picked up and incorporated into the Robin Hood story in the same manner that stories, incidents, associations from other outlaws got picked up into the Robin Hood mythos. Or maybe, yes, maybe the root of Robin Hood is originally as a sort of cosmic hunter like Orion, who is a devotee of the moon goddess. And we should consider that this notion, this idea that a mythic figure from sort of deep non-Christian mythology got changed into a normal human, got metaphysically simplified into just a human character, This is possible when we consider that this is precisely what happened in the instance of Maid Marian. It's very clear, looking at the evolution of the story, that a divine or heavenly figure, which is the Virgin Mary, became humanized, was transformed into Maid Marian. And probably that transformation took place in order to fit the story in with the new mainstream metaphysics of post-Reformation theology where veneration of the saints was discouraged and eventually suppressed. So I would say there is a possibility worth considering that mythic stories about a hunter and a moon goddess were gradually Christianized and then humanized, first changed into a story of an outlaw bandit who is devoted to a saint, and then further changed into a story of a rebellious nobleman and the lady that he adores. Okay, so let's say those are our arguments in favor of a literary invention of Robin Hood and a mythological root of Robin Hood. With that in mind, let's go back again and consider the proposition. Was there a historical Robin Hood? Let's re-examine and reconsider the historical hypothesis in light of these other observations and of new, more recent evidence that has been found by scholars, such as the examples of the surname Robin Hood appearing in the 1200s and the palimpsest from 1323 that shows the porter Robin Hood in the employ of the king in June 1323. Even if the name Robin Hood is invented, as seems very possible, nonetheless, it could still be an alias that someone really used. Maybe someone invented it as a moniker or an alias to apply to themselves as a bandit or a robber, which is something that many outlaw bandits did do. If this is the case, there could still be an original historical inspiration that began from an actual historical personage. It just would be extremely difficult to identify this person since they may have used multiple different names at different times, maybe a real legal name and then an alias. But if there was such a person, if someone was actually named Robin Hood or took that name up as an alias when they took to a life of crime, whoever it was, they would have had to exist before 1260, before the time when the name Robin Hood started to be used as a bywood for outlaws. With that in mind, if we say, all right, if there was a historical Robin Hood, he had to be no later than 1260, then we can look back again at early biographical facts that were claimed by chroniclers in the 16 and 1700s. And the earliest one that seems as if it might hold water was an early chronicler in the 1600s claiming that they had seen a grave in Kirkley's Priory grounds, which is now lost, but which recorded a death date of 1247. So that does seem about right. It seems to fit with the appearance of the surname beginning in the 1260s. It fits with the general social environment that we see in the early Robin Hood stories, which seem to make most sense in the 1200s, such as a poor knight who has to mortgage his property to the Abbey of St. Mary's of York. It fits with the extensive power and authority of the sheriff, which was the most important and powerful office of with royal backing in the 1200s, but which then later waned in favor of smaller local officers like constables. So in these ways, it makes sense that if there was an original Robin Hood, he should have lived probably in the 1200s and the death date of 1247 basically makes sense. One thing that that rules out is that Robert Hood of Wakefield, who lived in the 1310s and 20s, couldn't possibly be our man. He's simply too late. But again, even if Robert Hood of Wakefield is not the original Robin Hood we're looking for, it's still possible that he may have contributed some stories or facts from his life or his career that then got adopted into the oral tradition and into the legends of Robin Hood. For instance, as I mentioned, Robert Hood of Wakefield's wife was named Matilda. And more than 250 years later, Anthony Monday wrote two plays about Robin Hood called The Downfall of Robert, Earl of Huntingdon and Death of Robert, Earl of Huntingdon. And there are many strange oddities about those plays and many ideas about Robin Hood that appear in them that hadn't come in anywhere before. And he may have simply made them up or he may have been getting them from some oral tradition, particularly from Scotland. And one of the strange oddities about Monday's plays is that several of the characters suddenly change names in the middle of the script. Probably the script hadn't really been finalized and ironed out before it was handed over and published. So we see a kind of odd work in progress where changes are happening, edits are happening as we read the plays. And one of these odd name changes that happens is that Maid Marian, her name suddenly changes to Matilda which, as I said, happens to be the actual name of the wife of Robert Hood of Wakefield. So this is a contrary point that tends to weigh a bit in the other direction, that maybe there's some incident that happened with this Robert Hood of Wakefield and his interactions with King Edward during his Northern Progress that were then taken up and integrated into oral traditions and ideas about Robin Hood so maybe he is one prototype or source of Robin Hood and indeed it is remarkable that the story in the last part of the jest does seem to match up pretty well with King Edward's progress through the north particularly his extensive activities in Lancashire then if we think of the Robin Hood who is in the king's service that year and the following year, 1324, he may or may not be the same person as Robert Hood of Wakefield. He might be some completely different bandit that the king pardoned earlier during his progress through the north, maybe in Lancashire, not in Sherwood. And maybe the meeting was just later on moved to Sherwood because by the 1400s, people just thought of Sherwood as Robin Hood's main base. So even if it's true that these are two separate men, and that Hunter was mistaken to try to identify them together. Nonetheless, it does still seem possible that there was an early Robin Hood who maybe started the stories in the 1200s, and then other stories about other men or other bandits called Robin Hood were then integrated in to the legend. So if we go back and say, well, the surnames imply an earlier origin in the 1200s, but there are these resonances and connections between the legend and the king's progress in 1323, then it seems as if the mythos as we know it may be blended. It's taken facts and claims from different sources and strung them together. In this sense, the Robin Hood we know is necessarily a composite image, someone who has been shaped through an accumulation of ideas and facts. And this would make a lot of sense when we consider what's happened with the other characters who came into the Robin Hood mythos. So like I said, in the early stories, there's no Friar Tuck, no Pinder of Wakefield, no Alan de Dale, and no Maid Marian. All of these had to be woven in to the Robin Hood mythos over time. And if that has happened, it would make sense that the Robin Hood character, the main central character, did not just spring into being at one moment, but rather was built through various elements over time. But again, then we're left if we say, well, we can't rely on this Robin Hood from 1323. And if there's an original, it must be earlier in the 1200s or maybe even earlier in the 1100s. How can we look for him? where is a plausible place to search for this Robin Hood? We have to begin the search again. Well, in order to figure out where to look, we have to look deeper into the surviving early stories and do a deeper textual analysis. And this does reveal directions to look in. So as I mentioned before, there is a broad distinction that you can draw between two basic kinds of stories. So the corpus of Robin Hood ballads and the jest, show variations. One thing that you see is naturally, firstly, the difference in settings. Some of them place Robin Hood and his band in Barnsdale, which is simply a rugged, wooded area of South Yorkshire near the Great North Road, and some are in Nottinghamshire, where he is based in Sherwood Forest. There are differences between these two groups of stories in terms of the level of geographic detail, so there is much greater detail and authenticity to the settings of Barnsdale. There are very specific references to points around Barnsdale, some of which are remarkably precise and accurate. For instance, there's one point where Robin Hood dispatches Little John to try to find a captive. And he sends him to the estate of sales and says, watch for someone coming across the Went Bridge. And it happens that there is a manorial estate in Barnesdale, Sales, that has a high promontory where one can see over the Great North Road, including the bridge that crosses the River Went, the Went Bridge. And it is a perfect place if you want to monitor who is coming and going along the road. So there are all kinds of details like that, whereas in the stories that take place in Nottinghamshire, which are more abundant, there is no precise detail like that. We just know that the forest is Sherwood Forest, the town is Nottingham. And the only thing that you can point to that is more precise or authentic is just that there's a church dedicated to St. Mary and there is a castle. In addition, beyond that, there are thematic and character differences between the two groups of stories. So for instance in the Barnsdale stories you see Robin Hood staying in place holding court in the wood and bringing captives like the knight or the monk to him whereas in the Nottinghamshire stories he tends to set out from the forest on adventures. There's a difference in the degree of violence Whereas very little violence or killing happens in the Barnsdale stories, there is a great deal of violence and killing and especially decapitation in the Nottinghamshire stories. In the Barnsdale stories, Robin Hood uses more trickery and subterfuge, whereas in the Nottinghamshire stories, he more often fights and uses brute force. So it stands to reason that these two groups of stories were originally separate and that they were told and developed by different groups of people before eventually being melded together into the Robin Hood mythology of the 1400s. And there are reasons to suspect that the Yorkshire stories or Barnsdale stories are older. They give greater precise detail and they're more original. They show less borrowing from other outlaw legends. So these Borrowed incidents that I referred to, like, for example, in Robin Hood and the Potter getting into the sheriff's household, those occur in the Nottinghamshire stories, not as much, much less so in the Yorkshire stories. Also, the earliest place names connected to Robin Hood, like the Stone of Robin Hood and the Well of Robin Hood, are in Yorkshire. So this suggests that there maybe was an original body of tales involving a locally known hero or folk hero in South Yorkshire, and that then stories and tales that were sort of cliche or recycled from other places were then integrated in. So a plausible hypothesis is that the original folklore of Robin Hood was connected to a local character, maybe a real local character, who engaged in actual original stories and incidents that really happened and who was active in real specific local places, that that was the first inspiration for the legend and that then other stories were brought in from elsewhere Firstly, from Nottinghamshire, which is not far away, just to the south, and includes Sherwood Forest, which was long a base and a haunt for outlaws. And then from there, others from around England, from the Arthurian tales, from the stories of Hereward the Wake and Folk Fitzwarren, that those were then woven in later. So, this might account for why we see this layering of different sorts of stories some from Yorkshire that seem to be more original, others from Nottinghamshire that more often are cliched or recycled. Then also, there are a number of references in the early Robin Hood stories to Lancashire, this other county to the west in the northwestern corner of England. For instance, the knight, the poor knight who gets a loan from Robin Hood, he's said to come from Varley, which is a town in Lancashire, He is later in the jest called Richard of the Lee or at the Lee. And there was a town called Lee and a family with the surname Lee in that same area of Lancashire. The knight's son is said to have killed an opponent from Lancaster. And as I said, in the last part of the jest, the king pursues Robin Hood through Lancashire, including specific real places in Lancashire, like Plumpton, which was a royal wood in Lancashire. So this suggests that somehow also along the way, as the Robin Hood legend was developing from these stories about an outlaw in Barnsdale and then bringing in this material from Nottingham and Sherwood Forest, additionally, some sort of references or characters from Lancashire were merged in as well. And that when we look at early Robin Hood stories from the 1400s, what we see is a snapshot of this process, like in, for example, in The Jest from the mid-1400s, when different stories with different settings and different adversaries were being woven together into some sort of bigger, complete mythology of Robin Hood. So with that in mind, how then can we theorize that this all began? Well, as J.C. Holt points out, it seems reasonable to suppose that the mythology began in Barnesdale, a wooded area in South Yorkshire that happens to have a lot of families named Hood, where Hood is a common surname, especially around Wakefield on the western edge. And then other stories were brought in from the south from Nottinghamshire and from the west from Lancashire. But then... Where these stories really became popular and took off was not in any of those places, but rather in the South of England. So how can we figure how this happened? How were these stories from around the North brought together, but then transmitted to the South? Well, we have to look at who knew who, who was connected to whom, who was sharing stories, who was traveling where, who was reciting ballads, telling tales. And for that, we have to consider who were the big patrons. So the north was a very aristocratic dominated region with often big estates controlled by powerful families that were intermarried. And if we look at south and west Yorkshire, this area where probably the legend first began, the major big Landowning family that controlled a lot of estates and a lot of manor houses where people would have gatherings and see performances. That family was the Lacey family. And the Laceys had extensive estates running around south and west Yorkshire and some over towards Lancashire. And they had many servants, including yeoman servants, who often traveled from household to household performing services who attended gatherings like weddings or christenings. And the Lacy's were intermarried with other important northern families, including the Earls of Lancaster. So in the 1200s and early 1300s, there was a lot of connection between those families. And traveling servants, including minstrels, may have gone around among these estates of the Lancaster and Lacy families and gathered and retold and developed stories. And specifically in 1294, a, an Earl of Lancaster married one of the heiresses of the Lacey family, Alice de Lacey. And this married couple then also controlled extensive estates in the South. They were two very wealthy, powerful families, and they had estates in the South, particularly in Sussex. And this is important because the surname Robin Hood first appeared in Sussex, or first became common in Sussex in the late 1200s, around the same time as this marriage of the Earl and Alice de Lacey. Also, the first known reference to Friar Tuck was in Sussex in the early 1400s. So it suggests that as the legend developed later in the 1300s, 1400s, its main center may have been Sussex, and that's where new material, new characters were adopted in so it may be that the tales of robin hood which originally were assembled elaborated in yorkshire nottinghamshire lancashire that they made their way to the south to sussex through these aristocratic family connections and alice de lacy herself actually sometimes brought her household with her down to sussex maybe she liked the milder winters and alice de lacy like most wealthy aristocrats actually had servants specifically dedicated to music and performance, like a harpist. So this easily could be how the nascent legend of Robin Hood got down into Sussex and then started to spread through the South. So if we suppose that these characters like Robin Hood himself, maybe Little John, also the Poor Knight, if they were based on figures in the North, in these estates, like in the Lacey family's estates in Yorkshire and the Earl of Lancaster's estates in Lancashire, how did this Nottinghamshire material get in? And these stories about Sherwood and the Sheriff of Nottingham, are they about the same person? Did he shuttle back and forth? Or were they adopted from some other cycle of stories about other outlaws? Well, around this same time, in the mid and late 1200s, when there were these aristocratic family connections between Yorkshire and Lancashire and Sussex, there were rebels and outlaws who went into Sherwood Forest. And as I mentioned before, the Simon de Montfort rebellion was in 1265. And one particular rebel warlord named Roger Goodbeard after the end of the rebellion, retreated into Sherwood Forest and used it through the 1260s and 70s as his main base. But eventually his opponent, the Sheriff of Nottingham named Reginald de Grey, was able to close in on him. And Roger Goodbeard at one point then took shelter in the castle of a knight on the edge of Sherwood. This knight was named Richard Foliote. So, in this way, a, a rebel whose name is very similar to Robin Hood, Roger Goodbeard, did use Sherwood as his base of operations in basically the right time period, just a little bit after the legend of Robin Hood might have started. And he made an alliance with a knight named Richard, like in a jest of Robin Hood, and at one point took shelter in Sir Richard's castle, trying to evade the Sheriff of Nottingham. So If you put these facts together, it certainly seems likely that incidents from the exploits of Roger Goodbeard made their way up and were integrated into the larger mythos of Robin Hood. So these speculations might be interesting in and of themselves, but more importantly, they demonstrate a fact that... Even if some stories attached to Robin Hood are borrowings or tall tales from various different sources, this doesn't mean that there wasn't an original Robin Hood who started the process. And the clues, the internal clues, point towards a possibly real original Robin Hood in Yorkshire who started the legend and then materials relating to Richard Goodbeard and maybe other Sherwood outlaws were woven in and other long-standing traditional incidents and plot devices about other outlaws were laced in as well. So with that argument in mind, then what do we make of the ending of The Jest where Robin Hood meets with King Edward? Is it totally imaginary? Is there any real basis for it? If we're going to judge that, and again, that is the incident that should be the most easily matchable with real historical figures. That is one thing Joseph Hunter was clearly correct about. But if we're going to judge whether or not there's a real basis for that, we have to note that the jest really has two endings. This meeting with the king and pardon is really only one of them. So the first ending is the meeting with the king pardon, entering the king's service, and then 15 months later leaving and returning to the Greenwood. You can imagine the story simply ending there, and it has a nice closure, it has a nice symmetry, he sort of lives happily ever after in the place where he's really happy. But then there's another ending where after 22 years Robin is ill, he goes to Kirkley's in order to receive treatment, but he dies from bleeding. The two endings are strikingly different. The first one is very detailed, it's elegantly described, it gives closure and symmetry to the story. The second ending about Robin's death seems tacked on and it's very vague and only sketched out. So it's reasonable to suppose then that these two stories came from two different traditions of Robin Hood that then were woven together as so many stories are in the jest. The first one may refer to, firstly, some actual bandit in the north who was pardoned by the king, probably in Lancashire, not in Nottingham, and perhaps then went into the king's service for just over a year. And some facts about this bandit's life taken up into a different lost oral tradition may be carried on in Scotland. The second ending about Robin's death comes from perhaps an older Yorkshire tradition, which hence is more fragmentary, more ambiguous, and mysterious. And both in the jest and in the ballad Robin Hood's Death, it may be that pieces or aspects of the story were already lost or confused by the 1400s. So the larger, more important point that this makes is that if the end of the jest Really is inspired by the king's progress through the north in 1323. It almost surely was absorbed later, after some idea of Robin Hood and his life and career had already begun, and that the earliest clues to the surfacing of that tradition must go back to the 1200s, earlier than this Edward II progress through the north. So, all signs seem to point in a similar direction. If there was a real Robin Hood, there's a remarkable consistency that all the clues tell us it was Yorkshire 1200s. So that being said, is there anyone who would fit the bill? Well, in 1936, a researcher named L.V.D. Owen found in the pipe rolls of a court held at York in the year 1225, he found a ruling pronouncing an outlaw on a person simply called Robert Hood Fugitive. This, as J.C. Holt pointed out, is the only known record that has ever been found of a person named Robert Hood, who is known to have been an outlaw. And the following year, in 1226, a dispute arose over who should get the proceeds from the seizure of Robert Hood's property. And this record from 1226 specifically implies that Robert Hood had previously been a tenant of St. Mary's Abbey at York. This is the same abbey spoken of in A Jest of Robin Hood and cast as a villain. So could it be maybe that some conflict happened between Robert Hood and his landlord, the Abbey of St. Mary's at York, that led him to become a criminal and a fugitive? And could that maybe in some convoluted way have then given rise to the story of Robin Hood's loan to the knight? Perhaps is that story, as we see it in the first part of the jest, an effort to weave together an incident where Roger Goodbeard took shelter with a knight named Richard, and Robert Hood in conflict with the Abbey of St. Mary's, York. We don't know, there are not enough facts, but the date certainly seems to fit right. And more specifically, the early chronicles that I mentioned before all say that Robin Hood lived and operated in the 1200s, albeit maybe somewhat later in the 1200s. And there are other details and aspects of the story, like the poor knight, the Benedictine Abbey, the very powerful sheriff, that all point towards the 1200s. And lastly, as J.C. Holt points out, the earliest reference in any written chronicle or antiquarian account that mentions the supposed date of Robin Hood's death says that his epitaph dated his death to 1247. So, from 1225, when Robert Hood Fugitive was pronounced an outlaw in York, to 1247, when according to this account he supposedly died, the interval is 22 years. And remember, in A Jest of Robin Hood, the last section says... Robin left the king's service, went back to the Greenwood to the life of the outlaw, and lived there for 22 years until he died. So that may just be a happy accident. It's very uncertain. There is definitely no proof. But as of the information that has come to light to this date, this seems like our best guess. That maybe Robert Hood, fugitive, who was formerly a tenant of St. Mary's Abbey of York, was the first inspiration for the story of Robin Hood. Now, that being said, there are all these other arguments in favor of a purely literary Robin Hood or a mythological Robin Hood. So what would my conclusion be? Of course it would be, it must be a combination of all three. (laughs) There was an archetypal figure became the focal point of stories and images from real robin hoods say people with the actual name like the 1225 fugitive of yorkshire robert hood of wakefield robin hood the king's servant in the entourage of edward ii and also people who adopted the name robin hood as an alias like the outlaws mentioned in court records from the 1200s or for that matter, the mob that went out on the roads in Norfolk in 1441 saying we are Robin Hood's men. So in the whole process, there's probably a circularity where some people adopted the persona of Robin Hood, acted out the kind of actions that they associated with Robin Hood and his band, and then some of those actions and incidents got recycled into the mythos in a sort of self-perpetuating cycle. And perhaps this process merely accelerated then as Robin Hood was integrated into the May Games and linked up with other figures in the May Games like Maid Marian, Friartuck, and the Hobby Horse. And hence the mythos could also incorporate mythic elements and aspects that become naturalized such as the horse figure who may be some sort of deity or demon turns into assassin for hire wearing a horse cloak. So if that's the case, if there are all of these different strands that may have been pulled in to the Robin Hood story, literary and folkloric, historical and mythological, why is it that the mythological elements became naturalized and the story takes on this apparently realistic naturalistic cast? Well, it's because I would suppose As I said before, each mythos has its own sort of metaphysics. And in the living stream of folklore, different groups of stories and characters can branch off into their own distinct story cycles, each of which has its own distinctive mood and atmosphere and its own metaphysical rules. And the Robin Hood mythos, which was shaped largely by and for Yeoman, That one went in the direction of naturalism and realism, and hence spirits, deities, or mythic heroes became humanized and intercombined with stories of real incidents. So at long last, that is my best account of who Robin Hood is, what he represents and symbolizes, and where he may have came from. Thank you.